Hello, Kindred Spirits. Welcome to your very own Kindred Spirits Book Club, the podcast where two grown-ass ladies geek out about Anne of Green Gables. I'm Kelly Gurner, here with my co-host, Reagan Duffy, and today we are diving in to Anne with an E. Before we get started, Reagan, let's check in. How are you doing? Well, I have a cold, and I'm hoping it doesn't turn into anything more than that. My daughter went to the fifth grade outdoor education field trip. It was fabulous. They had a great time, but I think they all brought home colds. So we're all a a little sneezy in this house. We have a foster kitten right now with an upper respiratory infection. So he is sneezy. So there's just a lot of sneezing and a lot of boogers happening. That sounds really unpleasant. And I am once again delighted that I mostly work from home these days. (laughs) (laughs) So have you had one of my all-time favorite cold remedies, a medicine ball from Starbucks? I have not. I should get one because today is the first day I've sort of started feeling like it's hitting me a little bit where it's mostly like Mm -hmm. just in the throat, but I will have to do it. I did make pastina for dinner for Alice and I tonight, which is my new favorite go-to feel-better soup. Did you say pastina? Pastina. I saw this on the gram. Okay. Um, (laughs) And it's basically like pastina is just like little tiny pastas, right? So we used alphabet noodles because that's what I could find at my grocery store. People do stars or like the little circle-y ones or whatever, like the little tiny pastas. Cute. Yes. And here is the trick with the broth, which I saw, which is, this is genius. I'm always going to make it this way, which is that you boil up with your water or your chicken stock. You boil up the veggies whole, your carrots, celery, and onion. Then you just blend the veggies and add them back into the stock. A Plus, oh, my daughter doesn't like wonderful. chunks in her soup. Yeah. yeah. My daughter doesn't like chunks in her soup, so she usually eats around the veggies, but she loves the broth. And then you boil up your little tiny itty bitty pastas, and then it's more pasta than broth. And then the pasta just kind of absorbs up the broth, and it's delicious, and you can chop it with Parmesan cheese, and that is my new go-to. That sounds really wonderful and like just really nutritious and wholesome, especially when you need some of those extra vitamins. Yeah. Yeah. And so I've what I did this time was I boiled up the broth earlier this week just to have. And Mm -hmm. then I freeze it in like big ice cube trays. And then I always have broth in the freezer that's ready to be defrosted. Oh, genius. I know. Some days, some days, present Reagan is really proud of past Reagan for setting Mm -hmm. her up for success. Sometimes past Reagan lets me down, but (laughs) this this week, past Reagan was really on it. I feel like the older I get, the more often past Kelly is able to show up in really great ways for present and future Kelly. That's definitely one of those lessons you learn over time, though. How about you? How are you feeling? Fortunately, feeling pretty good, but I am loving the sound of that pasta recipe. You're going to have to send that to me. Regan, I think we should probably just dive right in because we have a lot of ground to cover. We do have a lot of ground to cover. So let's just start right away with who is the kindred spirit of this episode? And I vote for Mrs. Lind. We both really loved her portrayal in Anne with an E. And I think this actress brings a lot of warmth and humor to the role that really balances out the way she's portrayed as judgy and such a busybody in the book. And I really think you get a sense of why she is such a good friend to Marilla, even better maybe than we get in the book. Yeah. And such an important member of the community. I agree with you. Definitely one of my favorite characterizations in Anne with an E was Mrs. Lind. So our quote from the episode is going to come from Anne with an E, and it's not in the books, and it's from episode six. Anne has an inspiring conversation with Aunt Josephine, and Aunt Josephine tells Anne, I have the following thoughts to offer. First, you can get married any time in your life if you choose to do so. And two, if you choose a career, you can buy a white dress yourself, have it made to order, and wear whenever you want. Seriously, that is some great advice. Great advice for anyone at any time. If you want a wedding dress so bad, just buy one for yourself. No marriage necessary. Absolutely. If you want to get married, get married. But if you just want the dress, buy it. Well, Anne is delighted by this advice. And then later on in the episode, she tells Matthew and Marilla, I'm going to be the heroine of my own story. I choose myself and that way I'll never be disappointed. And I love this modern declaration of independence from Anne, who, of course, is one of our favorite heroines. 
it's a great moment in the show for sure. And it is that little bit of that meadow wink at she's going to be the heroine of my own story. And, you know, she's the heroine of this story too. We are picking up with Anne with an E after our deep dive last time into the 1985 Canadian broadcasting company miniseries. That was the version that Reagan and I grew up with. And it's the classic version in our minds. Even though, as we discussed last time, there have been lots of film adaptations of Anne in the years since its publication. Like the 1985 miniseries, Anne with an E is also a Canadian Broadcasting Corporation production. So thank you <laughs> to the CBC for keeping Anne alive. Moira Wally Beckett was the creator and showrunner. Interestingly enough, Wally Beckett had previously been a writer and producer on Breaking Bad, for which she won several Emmys. So kind of a tonal shift there from Breaking Bad <laughs> to Anna Green Gables. <laughs> yep, yep. Wouldn't necessarily connect those two. No, me neither. <laughs> the series premiered on the CBC in Canada on March 19th, 2017, and then internationally on Netflix on May 12th, 2017. There was a second season in 2018 and a third in 2019 before the show's cancellation. Anne is played by Amy Beth McNulty, Marilla is Geraldine James, Matthew is R.H. Thompson, Diana is Delilah Bella, and Gilbert is Lucas Jade Zuman. In our previous episode, we spent some time discussing how the miniseries was similar and dissimilar from the book, and we'll attempt to do that here as well. But if you've watched the series and read the book, you already know that the series diverges pretty starkly from the book in some major ways in terms of plot, tone, and characterization. One thing that this new 2017 series wanted to explore is how Anne's traumatic early childhood would have impacted her life at Green Gables. The book and the 1985 series put Anne's past firmly in the past. And even though Anne hints at how difficult it was, once she's at Green Gables, she seems able to leave much of that behind. So Regan, you are the expert here, but it seems to me pretty unlikely that a child with Anne's past trauma would have been able to just move on from that easily once she was taken in by a new family. What do you think? Does the book just sort of gloss over Anne's transition to Green Gables? Does Anne with an E get it right by bringing Anne's trauma into her life in Avonlea? This is the crux of my dilemma with Anne with an E. I actually think that they do a really admirable job of portraying all of the emotions and reactions of a child who has had Anne's life. She's socially awkward because the coping skill that got her through the worst of her childhood, her imagination, makes her seem strange to others. She's not good at reading the room with peers because she has so little experience. The flashbacks, the very visceral way that Amy Beth McNulty shows Anne's desperation and anxiety, it very, very much tracks with what kids who have experienced abuse, neglect, and multiple foster placements might really be like. Anne's fight, flight, or freeze trauma reactions are pitch perfect. And the fact that she lies multiple times to not get in trouble is surely one way she tried to avoid abuse in the past. She doesn't trust Marilla and Matthew not to replace her if she's not useful enough or is too troublesome. And I love that she tells Matthew so, that it's exhausting wondering if they're going to throw her back for any infraction. However, I don't know if the tone of Anne with an E really conveys the spirit of the books or the spirit of Anne as she's written. Do I think it's probably more realistic in some ways? Sure. Is realism why I read Anne? No. Yeah, my response is pretty similar to yours, Regan. I appreciate that the showrunners of Anne with an E wanted to depict a more true-to-life Anne, but that's a different story than the Anne of Green Gables that we know. The more of the series that I watched, the less I felt that it was connected to Ellen Montgomery's Anne of Green Gables. Anne with an E really feels like its own story set in the world of Anne of Green Gables. Yeah, it's kind of like they took an outline of Anne of Green Gables and then wrote their own story. Mm -hmm. Okay, we have seven episodes to cover, so we will jump right in. Episode one is titled, Your Will Shall Decide Your Destiny. All the first season titles are quotes from Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre, which is a really interesting detail. Jane Eyre, of course, is also a famous literary orphan who is beloved for her intelligence and imagination. I think it makes sense that Anne might have read Jane Eyre and thought of her as a kindred spirit. The first episode covers the book from the beginning through about the Amethyst brooch incident. The major plot points from the book are all there, but we do see more of Anne's history, and there are some other important variations that we're going to get into. Probably the biggest difference, as we discussed, is that Anne with an E is really interested in exploring Anne's mental and emotional state. The show gives us some heartbreaking scenes of Anne's past. 
For example, Mr. Hammond literally dies of a heart attack while beating Anne. Talk about dialing the trauma up to 11. And in response, Anne exhibits symptoms that we might now associate with PTSD, like reliving that trauma in flashbacks, disassociating, and angry outbursts. And in a similar vein, Anne's characteristic lively chatter feels more like frantic nervous energy than just general gregariousness. I also think in this episode that Anne with an E's Matthew is characterized somewhat differently. This Matthew strikes me as being more dynamic and he seems to have more agency, while the Matthew in the book is so passive. We can almost blame this version of Matthew for not being straight up with Anne about the orphan mix-up at the start, because he just doesn't seem as terribly awkward, nervous, and shy as Book Matthew or Richard Farnsworth's Matthew from the 1985 series. And as in the 1985 series, Marilla also puts Anne on trial again, which, as we discussed last episode, we think misses the mark a bit on who Marilla is as a person. Totally. To punish any transgression with being abandoned to the orphanage is truly cruel. So then when the amethyst brooch goes missing, Marilla must be true to her word and send Anne back. Of course, she realizes her error when she finds the brooch and sends Matthew to get Anne in a very dramatic rescue scene that carries on into the next episode. Yeah, it's a pretty stressful start. It really is. I have to say, as an initial impression, I love the look of this series. Although it is very beautiful, there's kind of like a spareness and simplicity to the costumes and setting that make it feel a little less like that lush fantasy of the 1985 series and a little more grounded and down to earth. I also like that the costumes and props seem pretty true to the story. One of the things I noticed was in that first scene with Anne, her dress and her hat and her carpet bags are truly very shabby and worn and even dirty. In the miniseries, Anne's orphan attire is kind of quirky vintage. And here they really use that as a way of showing how wretched and neglected she is. And then as we mentioned, I really liked Corinne Coslow's Mrs. Rachel Lind. I think she just finds that humanity in Mrs. Rachel and makes her so much more than just comic relief. I really enjoyed seeing Anne act out her imagination. I think Amy Beth McNulty really conveys how very in another world Anne is when she's in her imagination. But I do not love Marilla here. She's so much harsher in regards to the brooch and sending her away over it. No. Well, you and I have discussed in previous episodes, Marilla sets up these high stakes for herself and then she's going to have to carry through with the threat. Book Marilla knew not to set up a punishment she couldn't carry out. Right. But I have to say, I do love that scene where Anne is acting out playing Princess Cordelia in front of the white snow queen outside of her window. I just thought that was really lovely. And it gives us that glimpse into Anne's imaginative mind. Episode two is called I Am No Bird and No Net Ensnares Me. And this is a quote I especially love from one of the best scenes in Jane Eyre, when Jane finally learns the truth, well, when Jane finally learns part of the truth about Mr. Rochester and confronts him. After seeing Jane be so passive for so long in that book, this scene always feels cathartic to read. And then, of course, after Jane stands up to Rochester, he proposes. So it's either really romantic or truly horrifying, depending on how you feel about Rochester. (laughs) So episode two is pretty much all brand new material. And it covers Matthew trying to get Anne back, showing Anne and Matthew's separate journeys and Marilla fretting at home with deep worry. Matthew has to pawn his pocket watch to get the fare for the ferry. He gets knocked down by a carriage and knocked out. Anne nearly gets kidnapped by an opportunistic child snatcher and opts not to go back into the orphanage, but rather bluff her way to the train station with a kindly milkman. Anne intends to go to Halifax to make her way in the world on her own. We also see flashbacks from Anne's time at the orphanage, indicating that she was bullied pretty mercilessly there, and the orphanage is not a safe place for Anne to return to. There's a touching reunion in the train station with Matthew where he calls her his daughter, but Marilla covers her fears with irritability and doesn't say anything kind to Anne when they return. Matthew and Marilla take her to the church picnic, and the townsfolk are absolutely rotten to Anne. When Anne runs off, Marilla chases her, and they have a moment of reconciliation. The episode ends with the Cuthberts asking her to take Cuthbert as their last name and sign the family Bible as a member of the family. Reagan, just hearing you say all of that, I mean, the emotional whiplash. This episode is insane. (laughs) Yeah. 
<laughs> and I have to tell you, I think when the show originally debuted on Netflix in 2017, I was so excited to watch a modern adaptation of Anne, but I think I stopped watching it after this episode because of all that sort of just throwing every possible dramatic turn at Anne. When Matthew gets run over by a carriage or whatever it was that happened to just leave him bleeding out in the middle of the road, that is not my Anne of Green Gables. This is not my comfort read, my escapism. This show was just high drama and I was not there for high drama. The tension in this episode, Anne almost getting kidnapped and Matthew getting hurt. I did not particularly enjoy this episode at all. I really don't associate that kind of tenseness, this anticipation of bad things happening with Anne of Green Gables. And I really hate how terrible everyone is to Anne. I know I've romanticized Avonlea in my head, but gosh, in this version, there's nothing redeeming in any of these folks except sweet Diana. I love how in the book, Avonlea and Green Gables quickly become safety for Anne and they let her finally get a chance to be a child in the books. That's not happening here. That's such an important point, Reagan. The whole point of Anne finally coming to Green Gables and Avonlea is that now she has a soft place to land. And for her first introduction to Avonlea to be so antagonistic and for her to be essentially like bullied by all these town folks, it really didn't work for me. I will say that I liked that apology scene between Marilla and Anne. There's a really pretty sort of symmetry just in the way it's shot with both Marilla and Anne sitting on the ground, legs straight out in front of them. Marilla has finally come down to Anne's level in order to admit that she was wrong and to make amends. And in that scene, I think we do see some of the Marilla that we know from the book because she knew when to apologize and own her own mistakes. I also like how frankly Anne takes the Cuthberts to task. She's unflinchingly honest about the harm that they are causing her. And I think that's really important for them to hear. At the end, the Cuthberts ask Anne to become a Cuthbert and sign the family Bible, which symbolizes that she's their daughter. And, you know, they toast with raspberry cordial, which I thought was really cute to foreshadow that raspberry cordial scene. But Reagan, I have questions. How are they going to explain away Anne not knowing the difference between raspberry cordial and current wine later on now that we know that Anne has tried some? <laughs> yeah, I appreciate the foreshadowing, but then it creates a little bit more of a plot hole later. Yes! That they, have, they have to patch it up later, right? <laughs> And I do know that the way that the Avonlea folks treat Anne at the picnic is rooted in reality. We've talked before yeah. about how orphans and anyone of uncertain parentage would have been treated like they were second-class citizens in the 19th century. And there was a deeply held belief that you cannot know or trust someone unless you know their family. We get some of those references with Mrs. Lind talking about how Mrs. Allen is good people because her family is good people and she knows their family. Mrs. Hammond says to Anne in the first episode, only kin is kin. But it's not true to the book to have the Avonlea town at large be immediately so suspicious of and cruel to Anne. It changes that narrative arc. In the book, Anne does have some bumps in the road. She goes to church with her hat full of wildflowers. She insults Mrs. Lynde. But she also manages to charm her way into Avonlea society pretty readily. And it's an important part of the book to show that Anne finds a safe space in Green Gables and Avonlea. The way that Anne with an E introduces Anne to the town raises the stakes precipitously, setting Anne up for a lot more heartbreak and hurt going forward. Well, one thing I did enjoy about this episode, though, and found very relatable, is that Marilla spent most of this episode stress cleaning and stress baking. And then that, in turn, inspired me to make blueberry scones for myself while I watched the series. Delightful! Yeah. I also really liked that Mrs. Lind showed up at this critical moment for Marilla, having already sent her husband off to look for Matthew. I think that really shows just how close-knit the community is and how close Rachel and Marilla are particularly as friends. I really like their friendship in this show. I think it develops in a much more interesting way than we ever saw in the books. Episode three is titled, But What is So Headstrong as Youth? This is when we see Anne go to school for the first time and meet the other Avonlea kids, including Gilbert Blythe. We see Diana in her role as Avonlea ambassador, showing Anne around the school and giving her a sense of school politics. Anne is afraid she'll be very far behind academically. Diana and Anne see Prissy and Mr. Phillips standing closely together, clearly romantically. And Anne tells the girls, as they gossip about it, basically all about sex, referring to a man's, quote, pet mouse in his pocket and she refers to her experience witnessing the Hammonds very angry 
possibly abusive sexual relationship. Rough. Yeah. The girls are very scandalized. But now, clearly, the rumor is out that Prissy is having sex with Mr. Phillips. That may not actually be true, but of course, how damaging to Prissy. Yeah, and Anne truly doesn't know the difference, right? I mean, she's seeing two people who seem like they are they have a physical intimacy, and her only connection to that is what she saw at the Hammonds. I will say, though, this pet mouse thing is another one of those things that feels like, while it could be very true, very realistic, it also feels really inconsistent with the tone of Anne of Green Gables as we know it. I can absolutely appreciate what the showrunners are doing here. They're showing how Anne hasn't been educated about intimacy and hasn't been educated about what's appropriate to talk about in public, but it's just not consistent with the Anne we know from the books. Yeah, Anne in the books is impulsive and a chatterbox, but she's not socially clueless most of the time. Right. Mm-hmm. Then Marilla is invited to the progressive mothers meeting where they are talking about feminism and educating girls. Then those rumors from Anne's impromptu sex ed talk begin and Mrs. Andrews freezes Marilla out of the group. On her way to school, Anne is menaced by Billy Andrews because she besmirched the reputation of his sister and also because Billy is like a dangerous jerk. Yeah, he was already referring to her as a dog and barking at her from this picnic from the very first moment he saw her. Yeah, this just gave him a reason to go after her. Gilbert interrupts the confrontation and saves Anne. When Anne does make it to school, the girls warn her off speaking to Gilbert because Ruby has liked him for three years. Anne tries to ignore Gilbert's overtures of friendship so that way the girls will like her. And ultimately it's that which results in the slate smashing incident. And truly, I do not understand Gilbert's escalation here on this day. He wants to talk to Anne, but we haven't seen anything but gallantry from him thus far. He tries to pass her a note, then he offers her an apple, and then, out of nowhere, yanks her hair. It was so weird, right? It, it really was, was. It seemed uncharacteristic of the boy that we had seen in the show that far. Yes. Anne runs out of the schoolroom and home to hug Marilla, which sweet. And Marilla stands up for Anne with Mrs. Andrews. <sighs> Those Avonlea folks are mean and extremely judgmental about an orphan. So, Reagan, what did you think of Gilbert's introduction? I don't think it really worked for me. I didn't like that he essentially rescues Anne from Billy Andrews because that immediately disrupts the power balance between Anne and Gilbert. And then, of course, Anne's anger that results in the slate smashing was less about her red hair and more about her desperation to be accepted by the other little girls in the school. In our episode about Gilbert, and again in our episode about Anne's pride, we talked a lot about that slate smashing moment and about how to Anne, red hair equals unlovable, which is why she reacted as violently as she did to Gilbert when he called her carrots in the book. So that thematic arc in Anne with an E sort of follows the book in that Anne's outburst has more to do with needing to belong, needing to be loved than it does with Gilbert per se. But the Anne with an E version does ratchet up the drama and tension in the scene to the point where all the humor of that moment is lost. Where are the crickets let loose in the aisles of the schoolroom, I ask you? Yeah, the schoolhouse is not out of control, which was a defining feature of Mr. Phillips' ineptness as a teacher. And I hate Billy. He's not just a bully. He's extremely menacing and threatening in a way that made me afraid for Anne in the woods. It changes the character of Anne's refusal to go to school. In the book, she's embarrassed and it's very much about her pride. It's a little silly that she doesn't go to school. But honestly, this school is pretty menacing. Billy's threatening her and being extremely verbally abusive, which, again, could be very real to life regarding how horribly kids can treat each other, but not text to the book. The girls are freezing her out. Diana likes her but can't be friends with her openly. And the only kid who has genuinely been friendly to her at school is Gilbert, She's not allowed to talk to him or interact with him because Ruby has dibs. It is far safer for Anne to stay home. But I have another question about this. She's so angry at Gilbert, but her interactions with Gilbert are really nothing compared to the harassment from Billy. So narratively, there's something missing here. I agree, Reagan. There is a narrative thread that's been lost here. And I don't know if it's that they're trying to do too many things to raise the dramatic stakes in the schoolhouse or what, but it doesn't make sense that Anne displaces all of her anger to Gilbert when she's being harassed basically from all corners. Yeah. 
I did like the addition of that progressive mothers group though. And I like that this series has Marilla engage with the concept of motherhood more directly than you ever see it in the book or in the 1985 movie. We discussed at great length in our Marilla episode how becoming a mother later in life and learning to trust her own instincts for raising children is a big part of Marilla's growth. So putting all of that front and center felt thematically appropriate. What didn't work for me at all about the progressive mothers group is that the other mothers introduced Marilla to the idea that women should go to college and have opportunities outside the home. That totally misunderstands Marilla's character, and honestly, it infuriated me. Marilla Cuthbert is an unmarried woman at a time when that in and of itself was unorthodox. She understands full well what a life outside the norm of marriage and children looks like and how important it is for women to have a means to support themselves outside of a traditional marriage. Marilla in the book encourages Anne's education at every turn and delights in the fact that Anne is so intelligent and so capable. So the idea that someone else would have had to plant the idea of women's education in Marilla's mind is frankly silly. Oh, and of course, I hated how the progressive mothers then turn on Marilla and Anne, and I did love that Marilla took Mrs. Andrews to task about her professed progressive values. Moving on to episode four, which is called An Inward Treasure is Born. This is the bonkers episode where Anne finally wins over some acceptance from the Avonlea townsfolk and schoolchildren by literally risking her life in a fire at Ruby's house. So here's what's happening. Anne isn't going to school. And even though Rachel counsels waiting a bit and letting Anne take the lead about returning to school, Marilla gets angry when Anne daydreams and burns a pie and forces her back to school. Anne then pretends to go to school and instead takes some old school books to the woods where she teaches some pine cones about Canadian geography. Regan, my husband and I laughed so hard at that scene. That was one of my favorite ones so far, just because the show had been so deadly serious up to that point. We really needed something to balance out the tone. I mean, let's not forget Anne of Green Gables is a funny book. Yeah. So, of course, Anne gets caught when Diana and Ruby bring her school things to Green Gables and reveal to Marilla that she hasn't been in class. Diana really misses Anne, but Ruby honestly seems fine with Anne not being at school. (laughs) Marilla is understandably upset that Anne has been lying to her about attending school, and she calls the minister. The minister scolds Anne for lying, but then says she doesn't have to go to school because she can stay home and concentrate on learning how to be a good wife. This response (laughs) seems to surprise Marilla, who then starts taking stock, I guess, of her own life. That advice from the minister was actually another funny moment for me, and one that read pretty true to the era as well. Do you think that Marilla regrets her life choices? I think there's maybe like some wistfulness there, especially for her relationship with Gilbert's dad, but I don't really think she regrets her choices. She's too godly a woman to question the life that Providence has seen fit to give her, I think. I don't think Book Marilla has spent a lot of time with regrets. She very clearly believes in embracing what God has put before her, and she's practical about it. And we also don't really have any tragic backstory about having to sacrifice her dreams to take care of her mother, and we get that here in the series. So then there's a fire at Ruby's house, and the whole community runs out to help put out the fire, and Gilbert is being all helpful and heroic. Anne realizes that with all the doors and windows open inside the house, the cross breeze is fanning the flames. So she runs in and shuts the doors and covers the cracks. She makes it out eventually and shares that she has read about fire safety when she was in the orphanage. As one does. As one does. And of course, everyone admires her for being so brave and smart. But I mean, the fact that Anne had to go to this extreme to prove herself, I mean, it certainly makes for a more dramatic storyline for a TV show, but there is so much lost by not letting Anne's journey to family and community be quiet and small and unremarkable. Anne has to prove herself extraordinary in order to be loved in this series, instead of just being loved for being Anne. I actually see that to be a running theme in this show and constantly having to prove herself, prove her usefulness to the Cuthberts, her heroism to the town. Marilla softens to her when she sees how level-headed Anne is about the horse rearing when they're on the way to Mrs. Spencer's. She's constantly worried about being useful to the Cuthberts. Now she has to be heroic in the town. And I think the beauty in the books is that Anne learns that she is enough just as she is. She doesn't have to be helpful or practical or heroic to be worthy of love and positive regard. Yeah. Ruby has to go stay with the Cuthberts for the week while the house is being repaired. It is cool that the town grinds to a halt so everyone can go repair Ruby's house. Mm Mm-hmm. 
This is a moment I really like. I love seeing how the whole community comes together. Absolutely no questions asked. Yeah, I didn't understand that quite at first. I was sort of like, wait, why aren't they going to school? And then I realized like, because no, everyone in town has stopped what they're doing to rebuild this house. Yeah, you see Mr. Phillips up there hammering away and helping. That was a lovely touch, I thought. So of course, Ruby is mad about having to stay with the Cuthberts and she thinks the other girls will never let her live it down. But Anne helps distract Ruby and then Ruby, Diana, and Anne start the story club together. I thought this was really beautiful. You got this sense of the wonder that the girls felt by playing with Anne and playing in her rich imagination. Sequentially, it's a little out of order. We miss how Miss Stacy was the inciting factor to channel Anne's vivid imagination into writing for the story club. But it definitely works here as a way to solidify Anne's friendships. And it's shot really beautifully, too. The girls all in the little lean-to that Anne has built in the woods and the the light filtering in through the cracks. It's really a lovely scene. Yeah, this is a beautiful series to watch. Anne and Ruby spend the day making treats to bring the men who are repairing the house. They go to deliver them, and Billy is still being a huge asshole in front of everyone. But Anne (laughs) yells at him. She stands up and yells at him. Gilbert helps Ruby up when Ruby falls, and then he tries to talk to Anne, who just ignores him. They are really pushing this love triangle of Gilbert, Ruby, and Anne. Yeah. After a midnight talk with Marilla, Marilla encourages Anne to make up her own mind about school and use her brain. Anne decides to return to school, and Diana and Ruby are thrilled to see her. Mm. I also like that Jerry, the hired boy, calls Anne out on the fact that she's wasting a good opportunity to go to school that he would be grateful for. You know, I really like Jerry as a character in the series. I think by adding Jerry, they're doing something really interesting for the story. Like they're actually showing us what the life of the boy who the Cuthberts might have adopted would have been like. And I think he's a useful foil for Anne because Mm -hmm. the Anne of Anne with an E is maybe rightfully quite wrapped up in her own trauma. Yeah. And Jerry is a good counterpoint to that of, hey, you're not the only one who has to deal with tough stuff. Mm -hmm. And the way his attitude towards work and towards his experiences is useful and enlightening, I think, for Anne. Right. I think a lot of the other kids as a point of comparison for Anne are better off, have more privilege, more advantages. But Jerry, by virtue of the fact that he comes from a large, poor immigrant family, it's a more challenging life for him. Yeah. I did not like that Anne is quite characterized as a liar thus far. Mm -hmm. I get why she lied about going to school and why this is a go-to survival tactic. It does feel real for a child with Anne's past experiences generally. But it doesn't feel true to the spirit of Anne in the book, who, for all her mistakes, rarely lies. So episode five is called Tightly Knotted to a Similar String, and we both really like this episode. This episode shows us the schoolroom with Anne at the head of the class already in spelling. And then we get one of the best scenes from the book. The show interprets this really well. Drunk Diana! This is also the episode where we get puffed sleeves. And not going to lie, I teared up when Matthew gives Anne the dress. Oh, me too. The whole scene with Matthew at the dressmaker. And yes, drunk Diana. Yay. This is this is a good episode. It's it's mostly a much happier, like lighter episode. And I think that's what you and I were really both missing from a lot of the series thus far. I actually thought, I am a little sorry to admit it, <laughs> that that spelling test proposal in the beginning from Mr. Phillips to Prissy Andrews was pretty romantic. <laughs> Yes, their teacher-student relationship is a little gross and definitely problematic, and he is still the worst, but my romantic little heart loved that proposal scene. Ah, gross! I had the opposite reaction. For one, you can really see the age difference in this scene. Prissy really looks like a kid getting in trouble, not someone old enough to be involved with a grown man. (laughs) And two, it feels deeply inappropriate. It is, yeah. Yeah. If Mr. Phillips was maybe proposing to another teacher during the spelling bee, maybe I could find it romantic. But I actually thought this scene emphasized the creepiness of their relationship. Oh, you might be right. (laughs) Some of the differences from the book in this episode include giving Gilbert a dying father and a hint to Matthew's past that seems to involve his older brother dying, resulting in him having to leave school early. Anne's dress is made by Jeannie, an old schoolmate of Matthew's, who clearly remembers him very fondly. And, great scene, we also have Anne getting her period for the first time. Oh, so cute. 
this was one change from the book that I really like. And freaks out. She thinks she's dying. I know. <laughs> Marilla is reassuring and imminently practical. And then the way the girls compare their experiences and worry over bleeding through their dresses just illustrates how this experience is universal and binds girls together across generations. Right. I, I did like that. I quite liked all of these additions. Giving Matthew a schoolboy crush was very sweet. I loved his scenes with Jeannie the dressmaker where they were sort of reminiscing over the past and that sweet little button gift that he gave her. I just, uh, I loved all of that. And then that dress that Anne got, she looks so joyous in that beautiful dress. And I did love the first period scene because I have to say, I had wondered <laughs> in reading the books how Marilla ever would have told Anne about menstruation. Yeah. It's one of those facts of life that are always left out of older classic stories. Because at that time, those things were only whispered about in euphemisms. Mm -hmm. This is my favorite episode. And I think because it hues most closely to the book, not just in action, but in the feel of it. The joy in Matthew's face when he sees just how incandescent Anne is with the new dress is really beautiful. And you get a good sense of Diana and Anne's friendship. They make a very funny drunk pair. Oh, I love the raspberry cordial drinking scene. At first, uh, predictably, I got a little hung up on the fact that only Diana is the one drinking the current wine in the book. But I did really like the two of them giggling and singing and trying on Marilla's corsets. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It was such a great moment of levity. And the two actresses, Amy Beth and Delilah, are just hilarious together. They sort of did hand wave away at how Anne could have distinguished between raspberry cordial and the current wine but you know whatever so in episode six titled remorse is the poison of my life Anne saves Minnie Mae from the croup and meets Diana's aunt Josephine Gilbert's father passes away and Anne tries to connect with Gilbert about both of them being orphans now and sort of cringingly makes it all about her we get some new backstory about what happened between Marilla and John Blythe and we learn that Marilla had to stay home and take care of her mother after her brother died so she couldn't travel with John although he invited her to and even though this is a new addition to the series I really liked it but then we end the episode with the news that the ship carrying the Cuthbert's crops has sunk and that all that year's profit is lost. We see Matthew heading off to the bank with some papers, which does not bode well. I thought the saving of Minnie Mae was excellent. You really get to see Anne's level-headedness and her experience on display here. Draping Minnie Mae over the table so she hacks up the phlegm that's choking her is genuinely tense. It's very visceral, and combining it with meeting Aunt Josephine, who is in the way but still trying to be in control, was very effective. And I love the little moment when Marilla tells Anne that Mrs. Barry has been by to apologize and to ask Anne to be friends with Diana. You can see how pleased Marilla is for Anne and the way she truly gets what this means for her. Yes! And of course, we finally meet my favorite, Aunt Josephine. I thought it was really interesting to introduce her alongside the Minnie Mae scenes. It was different than the books, but not really too out of place. You definitely see her character as a woman who's used to taking charge, but who doesn't actually have any experience with children. She and Anne had a really fun rapport right off the bat. It seems like everyone also gets a great romantic backstory in this series. Matthew and Jeannie the dressmaker, Marilla and John Blythe. And then we learned about Aunt Josephine and her partner. I am all for it. I love getting these fuller life histories for these characters that we love. And I think that everyone should have a grand amour in their lives. I also love that this episode fleshes out the mentorship relationship between Anne and Aunt Josephine. I thought this was one of the nicest additions to the series. Aunt Jo gives pretty good advice. She does. I will say I'm not really sure what to make of Gilbert's dad's passing and Gilbert leaving Avonlea. This departs so strongly from the books that it's almost like reading Gilbert Blythe fanfic. I don't know how that's going to impact Anne and Gilbert's academic rivalry or their future education together at Queen's. Maybe none of that matters for the story that Anne with an E is trying to tell. I will say, though, that those funeral scenes and the scene at the Blythe family plot between Marilla and Gilbert, those were absolutely beautiful to look at. All that white snow and people dressed in black against the winter sky. I really just think this series is gorgeous to watch. I also didn't love that the series introduced the Cuthbert's financial ruin at this point. In the books, the Cuthbert's do end up losing money when their bank fails, but that all happens after Anne finishes at Queen's Academy. 
I think that timing is really important because the Cuthberts are proud to be able to send Anne to get a secondary education, and they're proud to invest in her future. This show is setting it up so that way they won't have that opportunity, which I think is a huge loss for the Cuthberts' growth arc as Anne's guardians. Okay, everyone, hang on to your hats. We're going into episode seven, last episode of season one. It's called Wherever You Are Is My Home, and we are really adding some big stakes before the end of the season. Oh, geez, I know. (laughs) Not necessarily successfully in our opinions. All right, hold on. Here we go. Because the crops were lost at sea, Matthew has mortgaged Green Gables at a high interest rate and bought a bunch of high-yield crops to make all their money back. Marilla finds out he went behind her back on this, and they argue he has a heart attack in the middle of their argument, but it isn't fatal. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. Marilla then goes to the bank to try to renegotiate the loan telling them that Matthew has had a heart attack. And instead, the bank decides this is no longer a good investment and they're going to call in the loan, ASAP. And Marilla and Anne have a month to pay it all back. Matthew has already spent the loan money on the crops. They decide to sell everything that they can. Anne even sells back her beautiful puffed sleeve dress to the dressmaker who generously gives Anne more than Matthew paid for it. Anne and Jerry head to Charlottetown to sell everything they can to the pawnbroker, and Jerry auctions off the draft horse, which is supposed to pay out the rest of his wages as they will no longer be able to continue his services. Jerry gets beaten up and robbed by two thugs. Anne runs into Gilbert, who says he's going away to sea. Back at Green Gables, Matthew is convinced it would have been better for him to die from the heart attack so Marilla and Anne could have his insurance money. And we see him fumble for his locked-up pistol, only to be interrupted by Jeannie and Marilla before he can get the bullets in the gun. He asks Marilla to forgive him and promises not to leave her alone. Marilla refuses charity, but everyone wants to help, including Aunt Josephine, who gives the Cuthberts a gift to be able to keep Jerry on. Marilla places an ad for boarders, and Anne cleans houses to raise the rest of the money. They seem like they have nearly enough in the end, with a sweet Christmas that includes their neighbors caroling at their front porch. Then, at the very end... The new boarders arrive, and it turns out to be the two thugs who beat up Jerry. Now they're all cleaned up and acting very polite. Obviously, some very nefarious con man scheme is happening. And then we close out season one. Uh, (laughs) I cannot overstate how much I dislike this plot arc. First of all, Matthew trying to commit suicide? No. Absolutely needless and very out of character. And then we have the panic about losing Green Gables. Then we up the ante with Jerry getting beat up and not being able to pay him without the help from Aunt Josephine. Now we've got nefarious borders. It's just, it's it's too much. Anne's been at Green Gables, what, six months at this point? It's it's too much. It's much too much. And I really, really couldn't stand that Matthew considers ending his life in this episode. It's so incredibly out of character for him. Matthew and Marilla are deeply religious, godly people. They barely even complain because to do so would be to question God's plan. The idea that Matthew would respond to hard times in this way truly misunderstands who the Cuthberts are and their outlook on the world. It didn't feel like Anne of Green Gables at all to me. This whole episode was just really... (laughs) Which is really stressful. And now knowing that there's this danger looming for the next season with these nefarious borders. Brigham, this was not the gentle experience I associate with Anne of Green Gables. Right. Well, so that was sort of our plot recaps. Brigham, what was your overall impression of this series as a whole? Okay, overall impression. I, if you guys couldn't tell already, didn't like how they were constantly trying to raise the stakes. Seriously. It feels like things are just so constantly tragic. Rescue of of Anne, menacing Billy, house fire, Gilbert's now an orphan, the farm is in trouble. It's too much. It just feels like a different story, not Anne's story. It's not a bad story. It's well done, well acted. It just doesn't feel like Anne of Green Gables. It's missing the sweetness and the humor and the comfort of it all. The beauty of Anne's journey once she gets to Green Gables is that she gets to be a child. She gets to revel in nature and learn for the sake of learning and make silly mistakes with no dire consequences other than her own pride. Her imagination gets to be indulged for its own sake, not as a survival mechanism. That's the piece that's missing for me. It feels like they took the broad strokes of Anne of Green Gables and then wrote their own story. In a way, this feels more like a modern series, a modern take on a historical drama, grittier, 
trying to portray the harsher realities of the time, more conscious of how modern audiences think and feel. The 1985 version leaned into romance and golden light and pastel prettiness in look and in feel. It was Anne of Green Gables by way of 1980s optimism. And the book was a product of its time and emphasizing more of Anne's rosy present and future than her darker past. Mm. I think you really explained that just perfectly, Reagan. You know, I didn't even really mind the dramatic twists and turns on their own. I just didn't like them when they changed the essential tone or the character arcs or the characterizations in the book. Like you said, where the book succeeds really beautifully is that Green Gables and Avonlea became a safe haven for Anne, who has had such a difficult life up to then. And while there are ups and downs in the books that certainly feel big in the moment for Anne, most of them are just sort of that childhood growing pains and simple misunderstandings, not these huge existential threats like we see in this series. And because the series is introducing all these dramatic scenarios, it loses a lot of the humor that we associate with the book. I kept thinking of that TV series Road to Avonlea, which I also really liked as a kid when I was watching Anne with an E. Road to Avonlea was a loose adaptation of Ellen Montgomery's The Story Girl and The Golden Road, and all the liberties the series took never bothered me. I understood that it was a TV show sort of set in the Montgomery-verse generally, without being tied specifically to any beloved characters or storylines. And I think if I had watched Anne with an E as a kid, or maybe if I had even just watched it as someone slightly less obsessed with Anne of Green Gables the book... <laughs> <laughs> I could have enjoyed the show the same way because it truly is a good show on its own merits. It just doesn't feel like Anne of Green Gables to me. I think that's an interesting point. My daughter really liked it. Yeah, we watched it together yeah. and she is reading Anne now, but she was first introduced to Anne through the graphic novel adaptations. So I think she isn't particularly tied to the feel of the original book. So mm -hmm. she was able to enjoy this as a standalone TV show in a way. But what I do really love is the casting and the acting. I really love this Diana, especially. As we discussed in last episode, I did not love the Diana in the 1985 version. I didn't hate her. I didn't love her. She's rather silly and a little catty. Mm -hmm. This Diana is clearly intelligent and socially savvy, as well as kind and grounded. She's actually more of the way I picture Diana from the book, the one who was helping Anne become an Avonlea insider. Oh, I agree. Diana was one of my favorite casting choices as well. I think a lot of times Diana is just kind of played by whichever actress auditioned for Anne and didn't get it. <laughs> but you can tell that Delilah Bello was cast specifically for this role. She really nails that internal struggle between how much Diana adores Anne and what Diana understands to be necessary to be accepted in Avonlea. I loved when she brought her silver comb and brush set for Anne to pawn. I think book Diana would have done the same thing. Yeah, that was a really sweet moment. And despite my misgivings at the beginning, Geraldine James's Marilla quite grew on me. I was not a fan of her the first two episodes because I thought she came across far too harsh, but that was the writing. As the episodes progressed, Geraldine James really shows Marilla's sense of humor and develops her relationship with Anne. But I would have loved to see either more the process of her softening or less harshness in the beginning, because it's quite a change and it seems mm -hmm. somewhat abrupt. Yeah, I think that Geraldine James was kind of a victim of inconsistent writing through some of, especially the early episodes. She's clearly an immensely talented actress, but there was a lot of whiplash between Marilla being quite stern and even unkind to Anne in one scene, and then later on in the same episode being very loving and maternal. It didn't really add up for me a lot of the time. I think Amy Beth McNulty does Anne justice. Mm-hmm. She certainly looks like Anne and in the more awkward, not quite pretty way that seems true to the book. They've aged Anne up to age 13 again, like in the 1985 miniseries, and that makes logistical sense. Amy Beth really looks Anne's age, as do Diana and the girls at school and Gilbert. But Amy Beth plays Anne with a desperation and this fierce anxiety, especially in the beginning. And as they've written it here, it feels accurate to the feel of this series not necessarily to Anne as Montgomery wrote her. And while she does a lovely job with Anne's whimsy, there's this thinly disguised terror underneath her pretend play and chatter. And that makes me feel more like Matthew pities her rather than that he's charmed by her, you know? At least initially. I think maybe we are missing more of Anne's sweetness in this portrayal. And I think that was deliberate on the showrunner's part, but I don't know if I love it. 
Yeah, I found Amy Beth McNulty's Anne really unsettling. But I agree. I think that was on purpose, especially early on in the series when it's clear that Anne is feeling so displaced and uncertain of her future. It was really hard for me to watch someone whose emotional responses were so big. But for the story they were trying to tell, I think that was the correct choice. I think the audience is supposed to feel a little bit like Matthew and Marilla in those moments, a little uncomfortable or ill at ease, compassionate towards someone in a crisis, but maybe not sure if they're ready to take on someone who clearly needs a lot of help. And so I think you're right. We did lose some of that charm. Matthew and Marilla seem more bewildered by Anne than charmed in those early episodes. The essential relationship between Anne and Gilbert has changed as well. Of course, in the book, she freezes him out for five years and it's all tied up in her pride. Mm -hmm. See previous episodes. (laughs) But in the series, we see a lot less of Anne's pride and a lot more temper and impulsivity. Sure. There is no real reason to hold a grudge with Gilbert in this narrative. Of all people, Gilbert is actually the nicest to her. It's only that the other girls are angry about it that puts Anne in a difficult position. Diana and Ruby sort of act in later episodes like Anne is weird for not wanting to talk to Gilbert when they were the ones who made a big stink about the fact that Anne walked in the schoolhouse door with him by coincidence just two episodes before. Right? This doesn't work for me at all. I Mm -hmm. think they're trying to do too many things with Anne and Gilbert's relationship here to give it the feel of the books and make Gilbert Anne's Achilles heel and really hammer home that Anne's friendships and standing with the girls hinge on her ignoring Gilbert. Anne and Gilbert compete academically, but you don't really get that feel for why Anne competes with him. Right. Why it's important to her that she's more academically successful than he is. Right. It doesn't make a lot of narrative sense to me. And I'm not quite sure how I feel about Gilbert. This Gilbert is very gallant and sober and thoughtful, beautifully acted. Oh, yeah. He is clearly looked up to at school and is quite a leader. He's responsible and observant, even ahead of his time. But we don't get any mischievousness, though, and I miss that. Yeah, I was thinking about Gilbert's character quite a bit after watching this series to try to pinpoint what that change was. Because to be honest, I liked this Gilbert quite a lot. He seems very mature and thoughtful for his age, but most importantly, he's clearly very selfless and kind, which you and I have already said is Gilbert's most defining characteristic. But I agree with you. This Gilbert is quite somber and Book Gilbert isn't somber at all. He's Avonlea's golden boy. Book Gilbert is beloved by everyone, a bit of a prankster, hardworking and hard playing. Gilbert should carry a spark of joy with him, and this Gilbert doesn't. Even before his father dies, you see he's carrying the weight of the world on his shoulders. And maybe it's just because I haven't seen the rest of the series, so I don't know what's in store. But I can't help but wonder how the Gilbert Anne storyline is going to play out between this sadder but wiser Gilbert and this version of Anne who's also going through so much. Yeah. I think the look of Anne with an E is very thoughtful, if definitely more starkly drawn with this cold winter light infusing it. And I think many of its best moments are Anne alone with her imagination. Mm, Yeah, I agree. This show does a really lovely job of bringing some of her flights of fancy to life. And overall, it's just a gorgeous show. I love the aesthetic of it. It's the kind of thing that I could have on in the background with no sound and just sort of enjoy the visuals. So instead of a birch path today, let's play a fun game. Imagine that you are a producer with no limits or budget restrictions, and you get to create your ideal on-screen adaptation of Anne of Green Gables. What would that look like? I was thinking after I finished the season that I'd love to use the slower pace of a TV show to really build the relationships from the book. I'd love it to have more the feel from the 1985 version, Sunlit and Rosie, but instead of adding more plot to stretch it out, I'd love to see things like Anne and Diana playing in Idlewild and the inner workings of the story club, maybe getting to see more of Miss Stacy's teaching and more of Anne's relationship with Marilla. I love that Anne with an E showed us the details of Marilla and Rachel's friendship, so I'd love to explore that more. I like how they added in the scenes about Anne getting her period, so the lengthier time of a TV show could let us explore some moments like that. We don't need any sense of dread, just thinking about and bringing to life what it might be like to live in that time, but also letting it be very fictionally lovely. 
I know without cliffhangers, a show like this would be too slow to get made. But in my fantasy life, that's the one I want to watch. I would watch that too. That sounds delicious. Every episode can be just like 45 minutes of real life PEI 1930 yes. girlhood. Wouldn't you totally wouldn't you love wouldn't you love a scene where you get to eavesdrop on Anne and Diana flitting about the woods and making up stories? Yes. I just want like longer montages. Yes. Cooking with Marilla in the kitchen and Mm -hmm. seeing their relationship gradually develop and helping Matthew drive the cows home. And what would ants be saying to Matthew? I don't know. I would love to get to see those relationships unfold more gradually and naturally. And I think in seeing that, you'd see more of Anne's healing journey. You Mm -hmm. know, Anne with an E was so invested in showing how much trauma Anne had experienced in her past, but they weren't invested in her healing at all. I would love a show that made that front and center. How about you? How about you? What's your, what's your pie in the sky version of Anne of Green Gables? Well, I think mine would have to be a musical. (laughs) There is a musical version of Anne of Green Gables out there somewhere. I'm going to have to look it up one of these days. Kelly, Um, I think it plays probably constantly in Prince Edward Island. Like, I think if you go to Prince Edward Island, you can see Anne of Green Gables, the musical. So Put it on our go. checklist. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll add it to the agenda. The reason why I think it would work so well as a musical is I think a lot of the elements in the book that are really hard to capture in a performance medium, like Anne's relationship to the natural world and her vivid imagination, those would all translate so beautifully in song. I can imagine the dramatic effect of Anne singing in rapid verse while Matthew is driving her home on that first day, only to have total silence when she sees the white way of delight for the first time. That would really drive home how awestruck Anne is in that moment. Oh, yeah, I could see that. You mm-hmm. know what that makes me think about is that in both versions of Anne of Green Gables that we've watched, she is not quiet through the white way of delight. Ugh. I mean, she's she's clearly awestruck by it and gazes at it, but you don't get this true moment of talking a mile a minute and then just pure silence. Yeah, pure silence full of wonder. Anyway, I think that's an important moment in the book. So but anyway, maybe in my in my fantasy musical, we'll get it. Absolutely. So, Reagan, for our puff sleeves today, what was your favorite moment from Anne with an E? Honestly, it's Marilla and Rachel canning fruit together in Rachel's kitchen, laughing about menstruation. Yep. (laughs) Then Rachel's husband comes in and you could see the genuine affection between the two of them. And it's understated and it's a lovely character moment. And you could see a tiny bit of wistfulness in the way that Marilla looks at them as Rachel and her husband tease each other. I just think it's such a great friendship moment. I would watch a show that is Mrs. Lynde and Marilla hanging out and doing their domestic chores together and gossiping away. I love it. Okay. I love that idea. Reagan, maybe this is just because we're old. We need a spinoff. I would love a show that's like just in their kitchens as they're like doing domestic tasks. And then like other people like Anne and whoever else are flitting in telling them crazy things that are happening while Mrs. Lynde and Marilla just sort of like look at each other and roll their eyes or laugh right. or whatever. And keep I would on watch sh- show in a heartbeat. Yes. Exactly. They keep shelling <laughs> peas as they watch Anne like fly in in high drama. That would be funny. Right, right. <laughs> well, I agree. I adored Rachel in this series. Yes, she's still the town busybody, but this actor is bringing so much warmth and humor humor. I love how when the Cuthberts are struggling financially, Rachel rallies the troops at the Ladies Aid Society and doesn't brook any dissent. We should all have someone like Mrs. Lind in our lives. Another thing I really like about this series is the title sequence, actually. Yes, I think that was beautiful. I thought, I thought it, was it was beautiful. Yeah, I thought it was really beautiful. It's like gorgeous animation. I love the song. And I think that the title sequence actually captures the essence of the book really beautifully. Yeah. I'm not sure it exactly fits with the tone of the series. Right? I know. <laughs> There's like it's a match, but it's I yeah. like it. It's more whimsical. It is more whimsical and very lighthearted, which is what clearly, based on what we've talked about this episode, I was hoping for with this. Okay, so were you inspired by anything in Anne with an E? I know I was very inspired by Marilla's brown leather belt. <laughs> oh, it's gorgeous. It's gorgeous, right? It is iconic. 
if you can't picture it, listeners, it's like this sort of thick, wide brown leather belt, and it's shaped almost like a short corset. And then there's like the second belt over it that gives it this little buckle with this equestrian flair. I'm totally obsessed. <laughs> and every time Marilla was on screen, I was telling my husband how much I wanted that belt. So I did the legwork here for everyone, and I did find a few belts similar to it online. So if you are looking for a Marilla belt of your own, let me give you some ideas. Banana Republic actually has two belts right now that are pretty close. One is called the corset whip stitch belt and the other one is called the leather corset belt. The leather corset belt is almost a dupe for Marilla's belt, but it's more of a chocolate brown. The corset whip stitch belt is a perfect color match, but it has more sort of fussy details than Marilla's belt. Then I also saw a similar belt at Ted Baker, which is called the Elspeth Wide Waist Shape Belt. And then Anthropology also has one, which they just call the leather corset belt. Unfortunately, I could not find a good version of this belt in plus sizes, but I have a feeling that a good custom leather worker on Etsy could probably make me the Marilla belt of my dreams. Oh, it would look excellent on you. And I too immediately noticed Marilla's belt. It's so a great belt. You. It really <laughs> is. So thank you. It feels very fashionable to me right? considering yes. the rest of her homespun attire. Outfits. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Well, thank you for doing the legwork to find all of those similar belts. And like the 1985 version of Anne, all the gorgeous knitwear and outerwear. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. All those my, sweaters. Yeah. My daughter very much wants one of Diana's beautiful capelets. Oh, yeah, right? Diana had that like beautiful, like little blue overcoat that had the little capelet. Darling. I actually hunted up a sewing pattern for a capelet for one that would perfectly fit the bill. So if I ever sew it up, I'll let you guys know. Oh, I want to see it. I don't really have any places for her to wear a velveteen cape, but maybe we should plan some. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure we can find something. Yeah. <laughs> for more practical inspired by, I have a sweatshirt from the Etsy shop Splendid Bohemians that says Kindred Spirit on it. And I've been wearing it nonstop since my mom got it for me for Christmas. It's a lovely weight. It's relaxed fit. And the graphic is perfectly understated and pretty. It, it's really cute on you. I like that sweatshirt. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Kindred Spirits. Thank you for listening to our maybe more critical recap of Anne with an E. So look, if you love this series, we would love to hear from you. Tell us why it works for you or what it brings to life or what you think it does better than the books. We know this series has a ton of fans and we would love to know more about why you love it. You can find us on Instagram at kindredspirits.bookclub or you can tweet all your Anne with an E opinions to us at KSBC pod. And most of all, please join us next time as we discuss some contemporary graphic novel adaptations of Anna Green Gables, where we will also be joined by a special guest. 